Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Kimberly Cook, and I'm the Assistant Director at the Hendricks Center. And today, we're going to be discussing freedom from anxiety. And this actually adds to a growing series that we have on this issue. We've already released one called A Christian Perspective on Anxiety, Dealing with Grief and Anxiety, and Ministry in Our Anxious World. So if you find this topic helpful or um, thought-provoking, I would encourage you to go check those out too, because the conversation very much continues. But today, we are joined by author, poet, and dad of five, Ben Powpent. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm honored. It's a joy. Thanks, Kim. Absolutely. So let's, Ben, just to get to know you a little bit, let's hear, how did you get involved in in ministry and reflection on theological truths and in theological areas, kind of what you've been writing on and that kind of thing? Oh, man, how far do I go back? <laughs> Maybe so, to, it, it was at Uganda? Maybe to Uganda. <laughs> yeah, so <clears throat> I, I'm going to blame my parents for this because they took me to Kenya, Africa um, <clears throat> when I was five, and we spent the next five and a half years there. So those were mm-hmm. formative years for me. And then coming back to the States, uh, dad was a doctor and uh, found a practice here. <clears throat> um, and I would say mom and dad both spent a lot of their energy equipping and filling us for that purpose of ministry. I, mm-hmm. I don't think that there's been a day in my life where I didn't think that somehow living was a separate from ministry. Uh, Mom always <laughs> used to say as we'd go out the door, uh, go make a difference, which used to drive me crazy. <clears throat> it's a tremendous pressure, but all she meant was, you know, go go give yourself away uh, to those around you. And so I, I now get to give my kids the same charge. <laughs> so I think it started there. And then I, I felt very called to teach <clears throat> Um, pretty much even in high school. So spent time preparing for that in college and then went into teaching full-time and taught for over 20 years and then had uh, some health setbacks that made it impossible to to maintain that kind of level of teaching full-time. And so I'm still helping the school that I, the, the Christian school that I taught at for all those years but just in different capacities. Mm-hmm. And then, what are what have your current projects been? So I your recent, I, I guess. <laughs> so the, yes, on the writing side, I ended up um, the journey through that health collapse mm-hmm. was so significant in my life, especially given uh, being the father of. At the time, we had three kids on the first health setback, and then I had a second one related to it later. Um, but that journey had so many mentors in my life come alongside to help guide me through the questions I was asking and just trying to get back on my feet, um, especially when you, fen- you spend all your life um, so focused on serving God that when something comes along that removes your ability to do that, you end up 
uh, questioning really who you are at a, at a really substrata level. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the conversations are so helpful in calibrating me to what really ministry looks like and what does God really ask of me in this process that I thought, you know, after about five years, I realized I'm losing some of those memories of those conversations. I need to write them down. Mm-hmm. That that effort at remembering the journey and those conversations became a small cup of light. And then from there, all of my writing, poetry included, I would say, has been an exploration of that relationship with, with God. Um, even The Stranger, the latest set of poets, poems that I've written, are really an exploration of um, what does, how, how does a poet um, communicate the urgency and the dynamism of Christ entering our world? Um, I think it's easy. So I, I started that. The section is broke. The book is broken up into sections. The first one is his advent. And I purposefully tried to undermine our typical view of advent. Uh, as something that's um, pleasant and mm. pastoral, um, because I think the the anxiety that we feel in society wide is something that's been around, obviously, but it was certainly alive and well when Christ came. So those poems have uh, they're very visceral, and I wanted that uh, to be as real as possible to the time then, because I want people to know this isn't. We're not living in some unique time where people are asked, uh, where the anxiety levels or the things that we fear are different. We have different, um, maybe we could say the problems are different, but the human heart is still the human heart. And poetry speaks to that so well. And I hope my poems do the same thing. So then, Letters from the Mountain was the book that. Uh, I wrote as a series of letters to my daughter who uh, loves the arts and she's her own writer. She's amazing, <clears throat> better than her dad. <laughs> Actually, all my kids are passing their father <laughs> rapidly. That's a good thing. It is a great thing. <clears throat> so, um, so those letters um, covered as much as I could of my, you know, what are the things she's going to face as a writer, as an artist, as a, but most of, most of those things are just human problems and anxiety is one of them. So there's a chapter set aside to that. Um, and I'm still, I find myself always um, steering towards the uncomfortable areas of our human existence. <laughs> um, there's a poet, a French, a French writer, uh, Moriac, who said, I didn't get to choose my color palettes. They chose me. I'm not necessarily happy with the color palettes, but all my paintings turn out the same. And he wasn't a painter, but all his stories uh, have that color to them that's a rich depth. And I'm hoping to have that same depth, uh, but I certainly find I can't steer away from the dark parts of our human existence. I think that those are essential. And I think Christians have every right to step into those with faith and hope and uh, honesty and authenticity. I think that's totally achievable. Rather than avoiding them, which we have historically right. done. <laughs> yeah. Well, We're trying to, you know, gloss over them. Yeah. 
and I and to be honest, Kim, that's something I still mm. I still do. I still try to avoid them. I've told my kids many times when they'll ask me um, about my writing that I write as a way of processing with the Lord. So when Scripture says, you know, draw close to Him, He draws close to you. Writing is that form of drawing close to Him for me. And I know that without that writing, constant writing, that's my meditation on God's Word. Mm. So you mentioned the chapter in your most recent book on anxiety, or the chapter on anxiety um, in your most recent book. So we've already thrown that word around several times, and I think it might be helpful just, you know, purely academic. Um, It might be helpful to to define it. So what, what do you mean when you're using the word anxiety? Oh, Kim, come on. Don't hold me accountable. Like- <laughs> it doesn't have to be like a, like a textbook definition, <laughs> yeah. but okay. just what are, what do you think of? What are That's we talking fair. about when we say anxiety? Well, yeah. So I, I have a very broad, um, my thoughts on, on what does that mean? are very broad from, from mere worry two phobias that that um, a clinician would be able to talk about more intelligently but I think we just have anxiety kind of as a hum in the background of life and sometimes that hum is more apparent we're quite aware of it our hands shake or whatever or um, <clears throat> we find ourselves in a moment when or approaching it's usually an approaching a moment that's unknown that leads us to that sense that I'm anxious. Um, but I think there's a level of that to our existence. that's just always in the background. And for some, it's more than it's more acute than others. Um, so <clears throat> even, you know, I, public speaking has terrified me for <laughs> ever, just terribly fearful of that. Uh, the first time that I, was asked to speak publicly was at church and it's not, it wasn't that big a church, Kim. I would say maybe there was like 150 people maybe at, at the service. And all I had to do was get up there and give announcements. <laughs> uh, I, I probably was early teens at the time and I, they, you know, they were just trying to get the youth involved, I think. So all I had to do is walk out there, give a couple of announcements and walk off. I went out there and totally froze. I had the notes in front of me, but I just was paralyzed. I stood there for, I don't know, it felt like forever, but it was probably five seconds. And then I just promptly walked off the stage. <laughs> it was You're the like, shortest I'm out. I'm out. Yeah, so that, that sense hasn't necessarily left. Um, what I find interesting in my own life is that the things that are unknown are the things that cause anxiety more than the things that are known. But it doesn't remove the fact that even some things that are known um, can cause that anxiety. But what I've found is that the more I've done public speaking, it doesn't remove the butterflies, but what it, it does is it acclimates you to the pressures. And mm-hmm. so you, you realize, okay, I know what I'm going into. I know what I'm going to feel when I'm up there. How am I going to pray now approaching that moment in a way that's informed and says, Lord, you know, this is what I struggle with. Um, 
And, and then you can walk through that moment in faith, and trusting uh, the Lord to give you what He needs, what you need at that time. I had a a, a dear friend who, uh, when I was asked to give a commencement speech for a graduating class, I was I was <laughs> petrified. But like, how do you turn that down? Right? That's like su- yeah, that's such an incredible honor. So I I was truly sleepless. And a friend wrote me a note and, sh- and uh, just quoted from, reminded me of the story of Moses, that, that Moses was stuttering, was not this public powerhouse. He was not eloquent. And yet God said, here, I'm, I'm sending you and I've chosen you for a reason. And I'm going to equip you for the work. And he did that. Right. And he brought, of course, Aaron alongside to help with some of those things. But that in itself, for those of us who are so um, uh, geared towards ministry, is so helpful to remember that I'm not supposed to be everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I can do what I'm supposed to do. And that that's a limited, actually, there are limited things that I can do well. And other people can do really these other things so much better than I can. So learning to let go. But I've I've rabbit trailed already off of your question. (laughs) No, you're fine. But when you were describing uh, the idea of going, going up and that every time you get up to speak, regardless of, you know, the crowd or whatever, it, it still elicits the same response in you. You just become essentially, yeah. Like you just become, like you said, more aware of what you will experience and you can, and you can deal with it better it reminded me of a different, I think it was either a podcast or a chapel we did here at the center on grief. And, and one of the, the, the woman who was the guest was talking about how grief itself isn't something that ever goes away. It's not something you get over. It's something that you get stronger and you are able to bear. And so in that way, I I think perhaps anxiety from what the way you're talking about, it, it made me think of that, that, you know, anxiety might not necessarily ever go away, but it, it you can you can strengthen yourself. <laughs> you can practice and, you know, you build up those muscles and to a degree you can then be able to bear it in a way that you hadn't been able to in a prior sense. Yeah, um, I, I would agree with that. Uh, but even as I was talking, Kim, I, I felt inside the sense that I'm making this too simplistic. Hmm. And I think your allusion to grief is a good one because um, that is truly complicated and something also that we run from. Mm-hmm. But we can't. You just can't run from it. And God loves to woo us, actually, into places of grief and fear and anxiety and suffering. And in those places, uh, we experience Sometimes we experience his presence more than we would on a normal day when we're, everything's clicking along. Um, it's not always the case. Sometimes it does feel very, very lonely there. So I do think that that um, the grief comparison is a good one. And I, I don't want to fall into the trap that Christians often fall into of saying that that anxiety is something you can get through or grief is something you can get through. Um, I had a, one of my mentors, Jerry Sitzer, who wrote A Grief Observed, um, 
one of the great books on on suffering and grief that I've ever read. But Jerry, when he read A Small Cup of Light, I really wanted him to tell me, is this true to God's word? And is it true to the human experience? Because I don't want to I don't want to make this sound, uh, I don't want my story to sound anything other than true to both of those things. And he said one of the things that he did appreciate was that I wasn't communicating this is something you can get to the other side of. Um, so his story is um, a tragic one involving an accident um, that he confessed at, you know, we had dinner together and he said, you know, just that week, he had driven into a place that had flares and um, cars were pulled to the mm-hmm. side and there were all these emergency vehicles. And Jerry, as he passed that scene, just lost it, just started sobbing. So he, is that a bad thing? I don't think that's a bad thing. That's, that's just, uh, I wouldn't even say it's something that you just have to live with. I think that that's a place that has rich soil for the spirit to do his work because there's a softness there. And when we have grief revisited or pain or anxiety that comes back, that can be a potential place where the soil in our hearts is soft enough Mm -hmm. for the spirit to really start doing some great planting. One of the more irritating comments someone made to me (laughs) when I was having my second health collapse and i realized i you know the first one i had tried to work my way back into the classroom the second time i realized i just am hmm. i'm not going to be able to do this thing that i feel god has called me to do it's impossible and he said i'm he took me by the shoulders hugged me and said i'm so excited for you like what is what are you talking about how can this be ex- exciting especially given that everything that i've that i've um, built around me is crumbled completely. And he said, Ben, it's so exciting to know that God is taking you somewhere that neither of us knows, but we both trust him to do something beautiful in your life. And if he's, if we have the faith that he's about something good, then this, this uh, seismic activity is shifting things in a way that they ought to be. If I have the eyes to see that as that potential and if i have the eyes of faith to trust him to be doing that good work but it sure feels like seismic activity and when the houses are all falling down then um, panic sets in Mm -hmm. i like what you said about like it creates the softness and you know again going between a parallel of grief and anxiety it's it's soft because those are the places where I mean, there are a few others in life, but those are the places emotionally where you recognize the end of yourself, like, or, you know, the, what you cannot do, your inabilities. And so, yeah, it it can either turn you hard or it can turn you soft, you know? And yeah, yeah, I think that that's, that's beautiful. And it's beautiful to think through that in your own life and to not fight it. I feel like our culture, especially that likes to put a gloss on everything, um, encourages you and, and rewards people for white knuckling their way through those things. And, and really the best thing we can do is just kind of sit down, you know, I mean, it's, it's trite at this point, but true. Um, you know, sit down like Job did and just kind of sit in it and and recognize what's going on and you know we have 
history of anxiety anxiety in my family and and there have been times where my family members have had to do that they just kind of take a break from work take a break from this you know and we're just going to have a <laughs> a good old time with the Lord and a good old time revisiting who we are as people, you know, and it's not what we do. It's not like anything other than, you know, we are children of the Lord and he yeah. has called us to set aside this time and we didn't really expect it, but here we go. You know. Amen. Yeah, I think we're so hardwired. I I I was going to say this is an American phenomenon, but I don't think that's fair. I think it's um more and more universal we're so hardwired to to be all and to do all Mm -hmm. and that it really does depend on us and if we can't be tough enough brave enough courageous enough competent enough then our identity we we really don't have the vocabulary i don't think we have a vocabulary of grief and you already articulated things that I find rather rare in my conversations with other people about grief, but about anxiety as well. We don't have a vocabulary for that. And we certainly don't have a sense, uh, the lens to be able to see ourselves apart from this mm-hmm. full competence. Um, I Chesterton wrote once, I hope I'm not putting words in his mouth, but I think he was the one who said that if we could go out under the open sky and let the sheer enormity of the universe, uh, if we could actually see it through all the light haze that we have, if we could (laughs) see the enormity of the universe, it would crush us and then explode us into a thousand pieces and we'd finally be happy. And I think that that's uh, such a, it's so counterintuitive to the way we're hardwired, but that's true of the psalmist. You know, if there's any, if there's any place, Job is certainly a great example of how to sit in that, in that grief and suffering, and just uh, be with God. Um, but the psalmist is where we go for that authentic human experience that we say we we understand, even when he's giving himself self talk. Mm-hmm. When he says, um, but I will praise the Lord, and he'll repeat that in multiple places in the psalm, he follows it immediately with these moments of fear, grief, anger, all, all sorts of things that um, it's easy to say, but look, he's resolved this um, in the way he says, but I will praise the Lord. Well, okay, I'm not saying I'm, I'm the psalmist, I'm, I'm, but as a poet? I can tell you that when I write things that um, sound hopeful, I, I'm really, this is self-talk. Yeah, <laughs> you're preaching it's to yourself. Like a, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't solved it, and now my next poem is going to be, you know, full of hope and resolve, and mm-hmm. we're good to go. Um, so, I, one, one friend told me, Ben, <laughs> you are a human doing you're not even a human being anymore. Hmm. And that's because I was truly, ministry was everything. I was doing a thousand things, plus raising all these great kids. And so when when I realized that I can't do all those things, I could hardly, at, at the time I was struggling even to walk or feed myself, that is so shaming to to a dad in particular, but I think to all of us, 
But I thought, oh, this can only result in awful things in my kids. I, I was terrified for that. So he said, you know, Ben, your, your kids are going to finally see you as a human being. And that human being, just being with God, is a far more effective testimony to the grace and power of our Lord than you doing everything, right? Mm. In my weakness is his strength. And I found that so true. Some of the things I could never teach my kids, uh, compassion being one of them, you, you can try to teach that, but that's very, very hard to teach. A lot of that compassion that they have has come from just having to help me, you know, um, take my arm and help me to walk. And those things that were embarrassing are things that have created in them a deep compassion for people. Mm -hmm. And a recognition, yeah, when it's when it's happening in someone else's life. And I mean, and even, again, anxiety and all of these things I think we've been talking about, they you know, till up the ground and, and it remains soft, not just in your own, and it can, I mean, it can remain soft, not just in your own life and in your relationship with the Lord, but in how you interact with other people. You know, when I see or hear that somebody else is going through a major problem with anxiety in their family, I have, I have like a deep front, you know, front row view of what's going on to them. And I'm like, here's the deal. What do you need? <laughs> because like, I've been there. And I, I know, at least to a degree what you're feeling. And I'm here to help, you know, this episode is brought to you by the truce podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like if you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh? That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Real quick, yeah. um... How do how do you see or as you've thought through these things, how do you see anxiety? And we've already talked about some of it. And we've we've yeah, we've talked about this a bit, but let's dig a little bit more into where you see anxiety in scripture. Um, I think, you know, we talked about well, we talked about grief and that kind of thing with Job, but where do we see fear and dread? You know, you talked about the Psalms you know, bad decisions, suffering, <laughs> where do we see those things in scripture? Oh, wow. So, you know, life experiences, I think one of the reasons why the book is the book is because your life experiences awaken you to passages you've read a thousand times um, or heard, and you uh, start to see them in different a different light or not a different light. They become more three-dimensional the older you get. So I would say that anxiety, um, and I'm going to avoid a, another pitfall that I think 
um, my brothers and sisters and I struggle with is finding particular passages that address mm-hmm. a topic. Um, I don't. Sometimes that's helpful, but generally speaking, I would say anxiety is is laced through the entire scriptures. The New Testament will address it outright at times, but when I look at the Old Testament, I look at Moses, I look at Gideon. Oh my goodness. I mean, Mm -hmm. Gideon is such an encouragement to me to realize here's a guy who actually hid from the Lord, right? Jonah hid for different reasons, but Gideon just terrified, like you got the wrong dude. And I find that so comforting to walk through all of these um, mothers and fathers of the faith who are who are now put in God's holy word forever as an example to us that we're just not alone. So when we have a moment like Christ uh, weeping blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, that shouldn't come as a place of, um, gosh, what is this, uh, you know, moment. Mm-hmm. Or we brush it aside as something less than what it actually is, which is just terror on a biological level, right? So I find that the examples of fear and anxiety that are laced through all of the scriptures all point, uh, just like the characters themselves, to Christ himself, who has come uh, not as some deity uh, like the Greeks would have had it, who comes out of the sky and can fix, or in their case, cause the problems. (laughs) Um, He has come and actually taken on the human flesh, and that has to involve some of those those things that we wrestle with uh, on a daily basis. And so all of those characters in the Old Testament, all of those moments um, when there is clear sense of fear moving forward, the entire Israelite story is full of those moments. Those are all pointing to this great deliverance himself who felt what we fe- felt what we feel and also has come to, to save us. But it doesn't mean that he's come to eliminate um, hmm. fear, right? So, so in the, when he says, I have not given you a, a spirit of timidity or of fear, depending on the translation, but of courage and a sound mind, that, that passage is not saying, um, in my in my opinion, that passage is not saying, guess what? You are now hope-filled, optimistic, <laughs> brave, and you have nothing to worry about anymore. What it does say is, look to me. I, I'm i the one. All along, God is the one saying, look to me. So, the passage where <clears throat> Moses has the golden serpent mm-hmm. raised uh, has been a, a life-saving passage for me on multiple occasions because really the israelites were called to do nothing except look to look to that golden serpent nothing and i think that call transcends that moment i think that is the christian duty that's all that god asks us to do uh, is to look to him and he's the one who does all the work anyways right um my son when we were adding a putting on an addition to our house would have been 
I don't know, four or five or something. And of course he wants to do all the work, right? Dad, I can do it. And <laughs> so I would let him carry the two by six and he would feel like he's so accomplished, right? He dragged this two by six by eight, eight board, uh, whatever, but he didn't realize that I've got it on the mm -hmm. other end. I'm actually carrying this majority of the weight for him. Um, I think that that's just how God loves to work. He loves to say, I'm sending you out, do this thing that's very terrifying to you. And you can do it because God's the one doing the work, right? Mm -hmm. So even when we have a total debacle, let's just go back to my public speaking thing. <laughs> um, I'm going to forget his name now, but there was a, a famous speaker who was exhausted one day and gave a speech, and he knew it was the worst speech he'd ever given. Uh, it was entirely embarrassing, not to him pr only professionally, but he could tell by the audience that they were like, wow, <laughs> this guy's a wreck. Underwhelmed. <laughs> and, yeah, so he got in the car and he just broke down in tears and his wife comforted and said, you know, nice things to him and, and encouraged him. But they both knew this was a total debacle. Well, it turns out a week later or something, some important guy wrote him and said, I want to come to your house. I need to talk to you about your talk. <laughs> so he was like, oh, great. Now I have to relive my absolute failure and the shame of it. So the guy showed up, very famous man, and sat him down and, and said, look, you and I both know that that was one of the worst speeches I've ever seen. <laughs> but there was one line you said, and it's haunted me ever since. And I have to come to terms with it. I don't know what that line was, Kim, um, but, but that was the line that ended up bringing this man to the Lord. So in all of that absolute professional failure, you would expect, if, especially the way I said it before, that you get acclimated. Well, here's a guy who's totally acclimated mm -hmm. to that pressure. But he, we still fail, and anxiety is still very real. And even in those moments where we're like, wow, the worst nightmare come true. Everything I feared, real. I've just lived it. Even then, God is so at work that he can take those moments of complete shame and turn them to something really beautiful, right? And if we don't have the hope of a God who can do that, then I don't know what I'm, I don't know what we're doing. Well, yeah, and I was really, I was thinking of, I mean, so we talked about, you know, where you see anxiety in scripture and, you know, I you took a theological approach, which I am working on um, a program in theology, so I'm very much in favor of. Uh, but I was thinking about the relationship between anxiety and and uh, we'll get to freedom in one second. <laughs> but um, addressing anxiety and the gospel, and and I think you're right on as you're what you're saying is the gospel in that it is a recognition that we really can't do anything in and of ourselves and certainly anything that matters. You know, even your son who was carrying, let's say he even carried one of those boards on his own. That doesn't build a house like it's just completely beyond 
his capability and and that's okay because that's where he was and you were Mm -hmm. the father and you knew that and and you know we're completely beyond any capability to do anything that is truly you know spiritually eternally meaningful apart from christ and so anxiety just lets us know that (laughs) and and then you know and and brings us to the opportunity that we can have those chains broken those chains of slavery to that broken and it doesn't necessarily mean that everything is all hunky-dory and you know we're all sanctified saints and all of that you know but it does mean that i don't have to stay in the prison anymore you know, yeah. I, I still have to w- get up and walk out and all that, but I don't have the chains around my, my hands and my ankles. And so yeah. at least there's there's a way to begin, but it's only because he breaks those chains. Yeah, and maybe uh, I'll riff off that a little bit and you can disagree or agree, I don't know. But, <laughs> um, the, the chains for me, Kim, are, are me, actually. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to recognizing my dependence, if I were to take your um, metaphor and say, I I get to wake up and walk out and I don't have to have these chains for me. uh, Walking out in, in uh, without those chains would be walking out without the old man inside me telling me mm-hmm. that I am absolutely essential. So if I'm able to walk out into my day or into this interview with a sense of um, freedom, that's going to require letting go of the ego that is me, mm-hmm. the whole kit and caboodle and uh, being able to say, no, Lord, I'm dependent on you. And when that, when I'm in that frame of mind, that gives me a stronger sense of gratitude. And truly, I have never seen this fail. Those who are really thankful people down to their core or who practice gratitude on a regular basis are far more, uh, they're able to handle grief suffering, anxiety, much better than those who just don't practice it. Hmm. Uh, so when I realized that by looking around at all these people who, who've who um, lived better lives than my own and who've exemplified the Christian walk better, I've found that to be one of the common denominators. What do I find that they do more than others? They're just grateful people. Uh, and so when I practice that, that takes those chains off and allows me just to say, Lord, thank you for this moment to just roll with whatever's about to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and you, you're taking the, you're, you're taking the, the camera off yourself, you know, and, and it's like, I, I'm recognizing that there's more going on here than just me and just what I want and I don't, I don't want to minimize anxiety in any way. It's not just you not getting what you want. That's, that's like <laughs> overly simplistic to the point of being unhelpful. Uh, <laughs> but, but it, but there is still very much um, when you are even in the midst of a panic attack or in the midst of a true anxious state. There is a lot of 
insular feeling and you know you're just trying to cope with these fears or concerns or you know um insecurities whatever they are and and the gratitude forces you to kind of like loosen that a little bit and recognize well this this has happened and that's that's really good even though i'm scared about all of this you know and so i i love that with gratitude as a um as a practice to really help. So in, in the last couple minutes that we have, what are some other resources or practices that you have found helpful or that you've heard about and you think are, are helpful? So do we have about 45 more minutes? Is that what I heard you say? Go like <laughs> three and a half. <laughs> okay. So <clears throat> my daughter when she was a little girl used to have these horrible nightmares and she just couldn't sleep. And so I would go into her room, we'd pray together. I'd read her the word and I'd have her pray and, or no, I would just pray for her. And after a while, this was a nightly thing forever. And I finally just was like, you know what? Are you praying? And she said, dad, of course I'm praying. I am praying all the time. So I said, great, pray for, pray. I want to hear your prayers. So she said, okay, okay. So she says, Lord, please, thank, please, please save me from the purple monster with the big teeth. And please save me from the yellow one that's in the closet. And mm-hmm. she just started naming all of these things that are terrifying for her, not just naming them, but describing them in detail. And I just stopped. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not what I'm talking about when I talk about prayer. So um, I, I bring that up because I think her experience is my experience, which I um, I think is common for us, which is that we, when we, one of the, I don't even want to call it tactics, but one of the calls that God has given us is to pray to talk to him. That's conversation. So it does involve being honest with him. But I don't know, I don't think it says, um, I'm going to name this addiction and think about it and describe this thing or this fear or this anxi- thing that's causing anxiety. When God calls us to pray, he's, he's saying, look, to, look at me. And when he says, praise me, that is not an ego move. Some, you know, the, the gods of the world would say, praise me because I'm, I'm awesome. No, he's saying, praise me because I know how you, I know the human heart better than you know it. And I know that the way you're going to function best is when you're constantly praising uh, Jehovah. And when Jehovah Jireh comes to save, that, that's, be, that's a reinforcement that our our eyes are where they ought to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that prayer has been one of those key aspects, but the right kind of praying. I would say some simple biological things like, you know, taking walks and saying no to certain things and having the ability to just sit down and breathe. Um, there, there are certain aspects of this that are just simple biological responses that that we can help at any rate by getting the right amount of oxygen going Mm -hmm. on. So, and I would say the other part is um, practicing the gratitude that comes with serving with other people who 
can attend to your needs and being okay with that. That's one of the hardest parts is accepting help. I'd much rather give help. Mm -hmm. Accepting it's a different deal. So learning to accept it and and be thankful for that. And then I would say um, there's a strange balance, and I, I think each person's unique. But you do need time alone with your with the father and you also need time with people and so figuring out how to how to hear yourself hear your body and know i need some time to be alone or you know what i'm just getting insular and i'm thinking about myself too much i need to give myself away mom was right she's when i was i told her mom i'm too exhausted i got nothing left she said you go give yourself away Find people who need you, and when you give yourself away and pour out what you think is empty, you find that God has filled you with what you need um, in the giving yourself away. So there is a death, um, there's a living by way of death that I think is a great Christian calling, and it's beautiful when we accept it and when we embrace it with gratitude. Mm -hmm. There's one other practice that I've come across um, is it, it actually it comes from a book but it's called uh like it the idea behind it is just trying softer so instead of you know trying harder the whole point is that you actually try softer and 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 that involves all of the different things you're talking about and it's this idea of you just have to take a deep breath and do what you know you need to do you know and and all of these things that make you that address you again as a human being instead of a human doing and and actually in that you will accomplish more than you think you will mm-hmm. you know we we hear all those things and we think oh goodness then like i'm just stepping out and like i'm gonna you know and, and it may involve some of that but even at, if it does involve stepping out you usually get further than you think you will but yeah. you do it in a way that is way better for you and for everyone around you, (laughs) you know, and it brings you closer to the father in a way that you wouldn't be if you thought you were doing it all on your own. Which is the goal. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, Ben, our time is up. I just want to thank you so much for joining us today and just chatting with me uh, and reflecting on anxiety. It was a real joy. It was a joy for me too, Kim. Thanks for your thoughtful questions and It was a treat to have this conversation. So wonderful. And we also want to thank those of you who are listening. um, And we just ask that you be sure to join us next time when we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.